in our study of uh, the gospel, we left off with Jesus Christ in the tomb a couple weeks ago. We saw him crucified, dead, and buried. We saw him brought into the garden where they laid him in a new tomb. And as in the book of Genesis, when Adam was created in the garden, yet sinned and therefore brought death to all men, Christ now is in a new garden. Yet here we see him defeating sin and death, and therefore bringing life to all who will believe in him. So turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel according to John, chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. And read this. John, chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Father, I pray that, that you, would, you would give us what we need today, and that is Christ, that we could see the glories of Jesus Christ in his resurrection, Lord, that we would look at these three disciples, Mary Magdalene, Simon Peter, and the disciple whom Jesus loved, that we would look at these three and learn from them and their discipleship. Father, I pray that you would feed us today on your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So J.C. Ryle, the bishop of Liverpool during the second half of the 1800s. I've referred to him a whole bunch during John's Gospel as we've worked through this book. But he wrote this sentence, and I think that this is an important concept for us to understand. Just one sentence. He said, the whole of saving Christianity hinges on two facts, that Christ died for our sins and rose for our justification. Let me... Read it again. The whole of saving Christianity hinges on two facts. That Christ died for our sins and rose for our justification. So justification. R.C. Sproul, uh, he explained justification like this. He said justification is as simple as A, B, C, D. Justification is an act of God. It does not describe the way that God inwardly renews and changes a person. It is, rather, a legal declaration in which God pardons the sinner of all his sins and accepts and accounts the sinner as righteous in his sight. God declares the sinner righteous at the very moment that the sinner puts his trust in Jesus Christ. Justification is when the gavel drops in the courtroom. And the righteous judge declares the sinner to be not only not guilty, but even completely innocent because of Jesus Christ. The whole of saving Christianity hinges on two facts. That Christ died for our sins and rose for our justification. There was a, a fairly prominent movement, particularly um, among the more progressive elements of the church, and this is still true today, it's really been in the last hundred years or so, um, 
fairly prominent movement that says that, that Jesus' resurrection was a simple, simply a, a spiritual resurrection and not a physical one. So they teach that, that what's important are the ideas and, and the concepts that, that Jesus rose to life and, and rises in our hearts and in our minds. But this is a false teaching from the pit of hell. The, the, the bodily, physical, actual resurrection of Jesus Christ is central to the Christian faith. The Apostle Paul says that it is of first importance. In fact, just flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to read part of this chapter. It's actually a, a fairly deep chapter when you get into it. Um, but as it begins, it begins pretty simply. 1 Corinthians 15, let me read verses 1 to 8. Paul, uh, re remember now, and if you would pray, I think, I think that when we finish John, we're going to move to 1 Corinthians. But, uh, Paul, in preaching, in writing 1 Corinthians, has to correct a whole bunch of things in the church at Corinth. Ben mentioned some of those things uh, during Sunday school. But then he gets to chapter 15. He's almost near the end of the chapter, and he says this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all of the Apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. Now just jump down to verse 12. He continues, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Christianity. Trusting in Christ for salvation affects all of creation. Not just our spiritual lives. Christianity begins with a truth claim. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15.3 Christianity begins with that truth claim. This is literally the beginning of what you must believe in order to be saved. And here's what I mean when I say this is the beginning of what you must believe. Even demons believe. Even demons believe that Jesus rose from the dead. But they have no faith. They have not put their trust in Christ. And so we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And Christianity begins with that truth claim that Christ died for our sins and rose for our justification. Alan Richardson, who was another, uh, he was an Anglican priest similar to J.C. Ryle, but he lived about a hundred years later. He was an author and he wrote this. He said, if we truly believe that God performed the stupendous act of raising Jesus from the dead, we'll not quibble about how he could or could not have done it. The bodily resurrection of the Lord is theologically very important in showing that the whole of creation is to be redeemed. The physical, no less than the spiritual. 
Christ's resurrection was not simply a spiritual resurrection, where the, the ideas and the concepts behind his teaching rise in our hearts and our minds. Jesus rose from the dead. Skeptics often read the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They read the accounts of that first Easter morning, and they come to the conclusion and I would challenge you to go ahead and read them this afternoon or this week, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the accounts of the resurrection, that first Easter morning. They come to the conclusion, however, skeptics do, that, they, that those gospel accounts contradict each other. So, so let me give you an example of what, it, what they, evidence that they point to. Here in this passage, John chapter 20, John here supplies really some interesting details, but he doesn't mention others that the other three do mention. And right in verse 1, John mentions that Mary Magdalene went that morning to the tomb. Mary Magdalene. But listen to what the others had to say. So Matthew 28, 1 says this, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. So Matthew says there were two. Mark 16, verse 1, Mark says this, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. She puts three people there. Luke 24, 10 says this, Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, and Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. She kind of leaves it open. There were several. Skeptics latch on to these, these apparent discrepancies, and they claim that, well, therefore, the Bible contradicts itself, but not so fast. Look at what Mary says in verse 2, John 20, verse 2, near the end there. She says, we do not know where they have laid him. Here's why I'm stressing this. See, see John is zooming in on one of these women in particular. Apparently, there were a group of them. Matthew wants us to see a couple of them specifically. Mark shows us a couple more. Luke, very careful in his historical uh, research and writing his, says that there were a bunch of women there. But John wants us to focus on Mary Magdalene. John wants to zoom in on her specifically. John is drawing our attention to specific details that he does not want us to miss. And in this case, specific people that he wants us to notice. But before we get to the people, uh, Mary Magdalene, Simon Peter, and the disciple whom Jesus loved, the other disciple, before we get to them, we need to take just a few minutes and look at the empty tomb. We need to look at the reason that, that those three, at least, ran to the garden to begin with. So let's zoom out for a moment and just look at the empty tomb. We will come back to this again next week when we actually see the, uh, the, the resurrected Christ in the next section. But so far we're seeing the empty tomb. But when speaking of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's, it's hard to put too much emphasis on the, empty, the emptiness of the tomb, the fact that he was not there. The resurrection is actually the, the grand proof that Jesus was the promised Messiah of whom the prophets of old foretold. The resurrection is the grand proof that Jesus is the Christ. We should even point out that the resurrection is itself one of the great signs that Jesus gave to the Jews when he was asked for some kind of evidence to, to authenticate his identity and his, his mission, his divine mission. And of course, when he was asked about this, um, he would answer prophetically. He would answer in a way that would leave them scratching their heads. He would answer as a prophet would answer. So let me give you two examples of this. The first is from Matthew chapter 12. It's verses 38 to 40, which says this. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. We can look at this now, looking back and say, oh yeah, I see that. We see this. 
They didn't understand at all what he was talking about. And so we also see this. This is even another example from John. John chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. The Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And therefore, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The proof that Jesus is who he said he was is the resurrection, and he's been pointing them to this all along. So, I don't know if you uh, have clued into this, even just in these first few minutes here, but this is apologetics. This is how to defend your faith, how Jesus did this. So based on these two exchanges between Jesus and the Pharisees, one from Matthew and one from earlier in the book of John, we can say this. If Christ had not been raised after three days, then we would be right to completely disregard him and all of his teaching. If Christ had not been raised from the dead, we would be right to completely disregard him. If the resurrection had not happened, Paul says, then we are of all people the most to be pitied. Because we're still in our dead in our trespasses and sins. But the fact that the tomb was actually empty, and there are at least three eyewitnesses to this, right? This is giving us eyewitness accounts. The fact that the tomb is actually empty uh, is the first bit of evidence that Jesus actually is who he claimed to be, which was the Messiah sent by the Father to redeem the people, his people from their sins. Because with the resurrection, we see a completion of his work of redemption. The resurrection proved that, it proved that the ransom was accepted. Right? He gave his life as a ransom for many. The resurrection proved that that was accepted. It proved that the victory over sin and death has been obtained by Christ. Christ was, as Romans 4.25 says, delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, because of that, because Christ has been delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification, 1 Peter 1.3 says, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because Jesus has come back to life, because he is resurrected, because the tomb is empty, those who have put their trust and faith in him have been born again have been given life, new life. I hope that you can see how important the empty tomb is. Now, <clears throat> strictly speaking, even though he has proclaimed it is finished, his work in total is not yet finished. Yes, his work of redemption is complete. His payment for sins was completed but he still has more things to do. He has to be seen by several people who will then go on to testify to his resurrection. That's what 1 Corinthians was talking about. Paul says that he appeared to all of these people, including 500 at once. They're giving him testimony that the words are true. But he also has some more teaching to do. He still needs to restore Peter. He needs to commission the apostles and he even needs to pass through the heavens where he would sit down at the right hand of God and wait from that time until his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet. So that we may then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. He needs to go to the Father that we may pray. That we may pray to him who has accomplished all these things for us. We may receive grace and mercy in our time of need. This, of course, this 
work next to the Father is the work that he continues to do. Hebrews tells us that he is always living to intercede for the saints. I hope that you can see how important the empty tomb is. I hope that you can see how important the resurrection of Jesus Christ is. And what we are seeing here in these verses, John chapter 20, verses 1 to 10, there really are some of the early evidences that the prophecy has been fulfilled, that the Messiah has risen. So put yourself in their shoes for a moment. They're still scratching their heads. Even by verses 9 and 10, when they, when they go back home, John adds in verse 9, for as yet they did not understand the scriptures that he must rise from the dead. They're seeing the evidence, though. The Messiah has risen. We can see that the stone has been rolled away. We can see that his body is not there, yet the linens are, even the face cloth. Of course, we know that this all adds up to a physical resurrection. But as John is laying out this narrative, he's giving us just a tease of evidence. You see, if you were to read just through verse 7, you could come to the conclusion that it's probable that someone has stolen his body. Right? If you were to just read John chapter 20, verses 1 through 7, you could come to the conclusion, any person who believes in the laws of science would come to the conclusion that somebody has stolen his body. This was in fact, Matthew tells us, a rumor that the um, authorities wished to spread. Except Jesus himself and the scriptures have been saying all along that he will rise on the third day. John is simply slowly laying out this evidence that, that something strange is happening here. Something unnatural by, by human standards. Something that, that goes against science because God is above science. It's similar to the first reports of his birth. There too we see evidence that something unique was, was happening. The, the Magi arrived from the east looking for a king. They had seen it in the sky. They had seen it in the stars. The shepherds, also looking to the sky, had, had heard it from the multitude of heavenly hosts. And then, and then they start talking about it. The, the Messiah has come. The Messiah has come. This is how God progressively reveals his word. It's often how he slowly opens the eyes of his saints as well. That's what we're seeing here with these three witnesses in the empty tomb. He's slowly opening their eyes to see that he is, in fact, risen. So the resurrection signifies that something new is dawning. Notice this is right in verse 1. It's the first day of the week. In fact, it is still dark. It's early, early in the morning. be around 7 o'clock if it was our time now, but daylight savings will push it back a little bit. But it's early in the morning, and a new day is dawning. But not just a new day, a new era. All four gospel writers agree on this. They, she, approaches the tomb early in the morning. All of them are clear to point out that this happened also, not just in the morning, but on the first day of the week. The first day of the week. This will go on to become, the fact that it is the first day of the week, this will go on to become very important to Christians. As early as Acts chapter 20 verse 7 and 1 Corinthians chapter 16 verse 2, it's going to be clear that the church, the church of Jesus Christ was formally gathering specifically for the purpose of worship on the day that John will call in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, the Lord's Day. The first day of the week. The Lord's Day. And so throughout Christian history, for the last 2,000 years, the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, or what some would come to call the Christian Sabbath, would be a day set apart for worship and rest. We see it in Acts, 1 Corinthians, and in Revelation chapter 1. It's common however, um, and I've actually heard people say this, to think of Sunday as a day for me. So you might think to yourself, I work hard six days a week. I need a day for myself. 
I think we probably all have said that at some point. It's been a week, hasn't it? I need a day to just sit home by myself. The Bible, however, and the entirety of Christian history doesn't look at it like this. The Bible tells us it's not your day, it's the Lord's day. It's the day that Christ was raised for your justification. And when we set that aside, when we call it our own, we're claiming to be of more importance than the one who redeemed us. It's the Lord's day. This is so often our problem. We, we elevate ourselves above anything and anyone else. So I want you to take that. Take those thoughts about the first day of the week. Consider the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart right now as you think about that. And contrast this, contrast how we view even this day with what we see in these three specific people. These three disciples. So obviously we have to start with Mary Magdalene. So let me read about Mary Magdalene in verses 1 and 2 back here at the beginning. John chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. You will notice that I called Mary Magdalene a disciple. This is true. Mary Magdalene was a devoted follower of Jesus Christ and his teaching. Clearly, she wasn't one of the twelve. We know that. She's not an apostle, but she did devote her life to Christ. Contemporary writers often, and this actually goes back hundreds of years, they like to make two claims that cannot be proven from Scripture. First, that she was romantically involved with Jesus. And second, that she had been a prostitute. Those claims are completely false. They find their roots actually in some heretical Gnostic writings that, that push a satanic agenda, especially that first claim, that she was romantically involved with Jesus. That has a satanic agenda. But what do we know about her? Well, we know... The scripture tells us that she was at the cross. Just look up at, at verse 25 of chapter 19. It says this, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. These four women, his mother, her sister, so his aunt, and... I've been around my dad for a couple of days, so... Uh, Mary, the wife of Clopas, who we think was Joseph's brother's wife, so another aunt, and Mary Magdalene. Why was Mary Magdalene at the cross with Jesus' family? His mom, a couple of aunts. Why was Mary Magdalene there? Why was she there when all of the other disciples, except for John, had abandoned him? This is why people with an unbiblical agenda like to speculate. Oh, it's because the two of them had something going on. But this is a complete fabrication that's totally false. And I don't want to get too distracted with this, but it is a popular notion out there. We know that this is false for two reasons. First, because it completely goes against the character of Jesus Christ. Okay? That's the first reason. And the second is because she was there for another reason. Let me give you a little bit more information that we do know from the scriptures about Mary Magdalene. It's from Luke chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. It says this. Luke 8, 1 to 3 says, Soon afterward he, that is Jesus, went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Here they are. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. And Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Mary Magdalene had been freed from her bondage. 
And she continued to follow him, even financially supporting the ministry along with some others. She followed him as a devoted disciple because he saved her. She followed him all the way to the cross. She followed him even all the way to the tomb. Bishop Ryle, again, he wrote that she was one who had been subjected in a peculiar way to Satan's possession, and one whose gratitude to our Lord for deliverance was a gratitude that knew no bounds. And then he goes on to say this. He says, in short, of all of our Lord's followers on earth, none seem to have loved him as much as Mary Magdalene. None felt they owed so much to Christ, felt so strongly that there was nothing too great to do for Christ. So she gets up at dawn, before dawn, and heads out to the tomb. In a word, describing Mary Magdalene, we could say that having received much, she loved much. And having loved much, she did much to prove the reality of her is, I would tell you that there's no, there's no proof that um, had Christ been still in that tomb, no one would have ever known about Mary But She was devoted to him. She went there that morning, that first day. Now compare her to Simon Peter who had made this bold statement to Christ just before his arrest in Matthew 26, 33, speaking of the rest of the 12 apostles, disciples, he said this to Jesus, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Yet it was Mary Magdalene, along with the other women and John, who stayed with him to the cross. She was devoted this is what we know of Mary. She was delivered by Christ. And she followed him to the cross. She followed him to the tomb. And as we will see next week, Lord willing, she will be the first to see him alive again. This is a life of worship. This is a life of worship. This is the life of a disciple. This is what discipleship looks like. While there is some momentary confusion here in her mind, but we can see it in these verses, they don't yet understand the resurrection. Yet Mary Magdalene is a fully devoted disciple. She's fully devoted to her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. She is fully devoted to Him. So as we look at these first couple of verses, it's still dark. You can hear the fear and uncertainty as she explains the situation to Simon Peter and the other disciple. And remember, as we saw in the other passages, there's actually other women with her at the tomb. So she's speaking for all of them. We don't know where they have laid him. You can see, you can hear the, the tension in her voice, the uncertainty, the fear. But we should consider, why did she run to these two? Why did she run to Simon Peter and the one whom Jesus loved? Why does John focus his writing on these two disciples in particular? The answer, let's answer that as we look at the disciple first, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Sometimes he's called the beloved disciple. Look at verses 3, 4, and 5. So Peter went out with the other disciple. They were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Now the first thing that we should note here, this is also really from verse 2 if you read that as well. But Mary assumes someone. She's assuming, evidently probably his enemies, has taken his body. And the disciples, likewise, they don't immediately assume that he's risen, even though he has been telling them over and over and over again that he was going to rise after three days. Instead, they jump up and they run to investigate. Now, there is there's good scriptural evidence that shows us that the disciples, uh, the disciples of Jesus actually believed 
in a resurrection. They actually believed in a resurrection. Martha had said, referring to her brother Lazarus, back in chapter 11, verse 24, which didn't take place all that long before this, maybe a few weeks, she had said this, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She was speaking of Lazarus who had just died. They believed in a resurrection. They had witnessed Lazarus actually walking out from the tomb. But it's pretty clear from their reaction here that they weren't expecting to see Jesus alive again. And this news that Mary has, has brought was so startling that they jump up and run to the tomb. Now I have to believe that Peter was slower to arrive. It doesn't tell us why. Um, maybe he's just a little bit older. But I have to believe that the reason that Peter is slower to get to the tomb than John, because of what's happening in his heart. We'll get to him in a minute. So the first thing that we need to say is, who was this other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved? We've mentioned him a few times in this gospel already. John chapter 13 puts him, specifically using that phrase, at the Last Supper. We'll see him again at the cross. Look up at verse 26 and 7 of chapter 19. Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. He said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. He said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. This is, this is John himself. He tells us as much in the last couple paragraphs of the book. I'll let you look at that sometime. But here's why this is important. Here's why it's important to understand these things. John is an eyewitness of the resurrection. He's even an eyewitness of the empty tomb. And, and, and this gives us a certain level, gives John a certain level of, of credibility. He's trustworthy. He could testify to these things in a court of law, right? We even understand that in our, in our modern court system. Eyewitness testimony, they give testimony. Otherwise, it's just hearsay. John is able to give testimony. But also, like Mary Magdalene, John also was loved by Jesus, and he knew it. He even absorbed this into his whole identity. He calls himself the one whom Jesus loved. This doesn't mean that Jesus didn't love the others. John is saying, Jesus loves me. This I know, because Jesus tells me so. John is convinced that Jesus loves him, and this changes his life. John is, he has a brother named James. The two of them were nicknamed by Jesus the Sons of Thunder. Listen to two passages that describe the character of John earlier in his life. Uh, first is from Luke chapter 9. It says this, When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, heard it, they said, Lord... Do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. This is classic sons of thunder. They don't want us here. Can we destroy them? Could we pour out God's wrath on them, please? Jesus rebuked them. Now listen to Mark chapter 10, verses 32, uh, beginning verse 32 says this. And they were on the road going to, up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the, twelve, talking, uh, taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. Say, this is what he's telling them as they're headed to Jerusalem. See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. So he's telling them that he's going to be crucified, but he's going to rise again. Listen to how James and John respond to this. These sons of thunder, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. He said to them, What do you want me to do for you? 
They said to him, Grant us to sit, one on your right hand, one on your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? He's talking about the cup of God's wrath. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant. It is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. On the way to the cross, he tells them, I'm about to be arrested. I'm going to be flogged. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be killed. Can we sit at your right hand and your left? Sons of thunder. Yet this impulsive, immature disciple was loved by Christ. He was rebuked by him. Yet here he was at the cross. And now he is looking in the empty tomb. He sees the evidence. John sees the linen cloths lying there, but he doesn't go in yet. We're not told why. We're not told why he doesn't go in. He just stops and looks in. If it were me, I don't know about you, if it were me, it would be because of fear. I would not want to go in that tomb. I would not want to be there. Especially with all that John has seen in these past days. Especially with the way that he's been treated. And everybody knows that John is a part of that. John is a part of the disciples. He's been there even to the point of Jesus saying, Behold your mother. Fear and confusion, yet loved by Jesus. This is what discipleship looks like. This is what discipleship looks like. Mary Magdalene had a, a dramatic conversion experience. It delivered from demonic oppression and she followed him to the cross. She followed him to the to the tomb. John had simply followed him, but he also followed him to the cross. He followed him to the tomb, and here he stood frozen at the entrance looking in. Verse 9 tells us that they didn't understand. He's still confused. But along comes Simon Peter. Look at verses 6 and 7. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Peter, Peter's always listed first when you see a list of the 12 disciples or apostles. Peter is their leader. Peter is their spokesman. Peter is also impulsive and rash. Peter could easily have been a son of thunder. Yet, yet he is, as Jesus called him, the rock, Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Peter is the one who made the confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. But he's also the same Peter who is not mentioned as being at the cross. Instead, Peter denied Christ three times. And while Mary Magdalene and John followed Jesus to the cross that day, listen to what happened to Peter. Luke gives us a little bit more insight. Luke 22, verse 60 says this, But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, he will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. That's what Peter was when Jesus was on the cross. Gone. Bitterly weeping. Because of his own sin and denial. But Peter... Peter desperately wants to believe. Mary Magdalene saw the stone was rolled away. She ran to get the disciples. John arrives at the tomb first and stood there dumbfounded looking in. But Peter, when he got there, he ran right in. 
you can imagine Peter's heart was pounding when he got there. Not necessarily because of the run, though. Do you see the word saw in verse 6? He saw, S-A-W. It's also what John does in verse 5. Do you see the same word? Yet in John's case, in Greek it's actually two different words. In John's case, in verse 5, it literally means to look and see. That's it. John saw. But Peter, in Peter's case, it's a different word. It actually is a word that we get our English word theorize from. It means to wonder regarding something's meaning. He looked and he started thinking about it. He started making theories in his mind. What is going on here? He's trying to figure it out. He's wondering about what is happening. He is investigating. He sees the face cloth. He knows that any grave robber would have left that face cloth on the face of somebody who had been beaten to a pole and hauled out of there after being dead for three days. They would have not wanted to look at the face of Jesus. Nobody would have taken those cloths away. What is happening here? He's trying to figure out all of this. Right here, right here, look at Peter. This is what discipleship looks like. Confusion. Sometimes fear, uncertainty, wonder. And in Peter's case, like Mary and John, he's changed. He's changed. He's sinned, and he's already showing evidence of repentance. Peter has denied Christ three times. Yet unlike Judas, who betrayed Christ and then went out and killed himself, Peter runs to the tomb and wonders if Jesus had been right all along. Could he have really risen as he said he would? What is happening? Go back to the disciple whom Jesus loved. Verse 8 says this, Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. That's also one word in Greek, and it means saw and believed. <laughs> That's what it means. He didn't just see now. He didn't just see and wonder. He saw and believed. He finally gets up the courage to follow Peter into the tomb, and when he did, he saw and believed. This is this is childlike faith. That's what this is. This is a childlike faith. Later, as verse 9 tells us, they're going to understand the prophecies from the scriptures, from the Old Testament, that Christ had been telling them all along. Later, they'll, they'll start to put it all together. But now, he simply believed, and then they went home. Verse 10. He believed, and they went home. I'll say it again. This is what discipleship looks like. This is what discipleship looks like. Look at these three. What were these three without Christ? What were they without Christ? As we finish, let me give you three quick gospel notes by way of application. The three things I don't want you to miss from this today. The first is this, and I believe this is the most important. The historical fact of the empty tomb points us to the foundation of our faith, which is this. He is risen. He is risen. Second is this. So the empty tomb points to the foundation of our faith, which is this phrase. He is risen. The second is this. These three disciples provide eyewitness accounts. So think of what Paul had said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What's also important about that is this. John names names. He says it was Mary Magdalene, and he said it was Simon Peter. And then he tells us throughout the book, it was also me. He names names. By the time of this writing, these would have been very well-known people. And of course, it means for us that the scriptures are reliable. Again, that's verse 9. Even these eyewitnesses believed, not because of what they saw. They believed ultimately because of the scriptures. That's what verse 9 tells us. They believed. 
And the third is this. Even through their fear, even through their confusion, and even through their sin, this is what discipleship looks like. Are, are these three perfect models of disciples? Of course not. Of course they're not perfect. Both Peter and John were rebuked by Christ. Jesus actually said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Peter was rebuked by him on multiple occasions, but they went to Christ. They ran to Christ. These three disciples give us hope. They give us hope for forgiveness, hope for redemption, hope for restoration. I'm here to tell you today that you don't have to have your life together to come to Jesus Christ. Just run to Him. Just confess your sin to Him and run to Christ for salvation. But I'm also here to tell you, as Christians, if you're a Christian, you don't even have to have your life together to come to the table. Just confess your sin and know that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. They went to Christ. They went to the tomb. They went to the place where he was last. We will see this played out in the rest of the chapter as we continue in the coming weeks. You don't have to have your life together to be a part of the church. Praise God. You don't have to be your, have your life together to be one of His children. Don't stay there. Don't stay a mess and a wreck. But know that you can come to Him for healing salvation. There is therefore no, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so we come and we eat and drink and we proclaim his death until he comes. We pray with you. Lord, we look at these three and we can see their confusion. I can see Mary's confusion. They have taken the Lord and we don't know where he is. And see John as he just is dumbfounded, standing, looking in. And Peter as he runs in and wonders what is happening. Is, is it true? You can see as John finally steps in. He sees and believes. Father, I pray that we would have the eyes of John there in verse 8. That we would see and believe. We believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. The one who died for our sins and was raised for our justification. Help us to believe. Strengthen our faith today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.